Welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. I'm your host, founder and CEO of Medical Justice. I'm Jeff Siegel. And today we're joined by Leslie Fletcher. And I'll briefly tell you how and why we met. We met related to an article she published in Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology in 2021 about how to potentially identify body dysmorphic disorder um, cryptically um, as a screening tool um, to recognize who these patients are in your practice. And we'll describe in detail why that's important and what the benefits of doing that uh, may be. So by way of background, board certified nurse practitioner, Leslie Fletcher, is a highly respected aesthetic nurse injector who has worked with world-renowned celebrity dermatologists and plastic surgeons since 2001. In 2019 and 2020, she was named Best Aesthetic Nurse in the United States, which is an amazing award. And her clinic was voted Best Medical Spa in the World by her peers in the largest global aesthetic awards, My Face, My Body. Again, uh, quite an amazing accolade. She is sought out as an international speaker at aesthetic conferences and faculty injection trainer for some time at some of the most prestigious aesthetic um, training companies and pharmaceutical companies in the world, where she has trained over 6,000, repeat over 6,000 practitioners globally and is recognized as a key opinion leader. In 2020, she was given the esteemed honor by Allergan AbbVie of serving as one of seven practitioners nationwide who consult as an expert for adverse events, advising practitioners all over the country through their complications. This is an important, um, I guess, benefit for people who are in the middle of a complication, the middle of a problem. Being able to turn to someone who has background training and experience in these matters is just uh, an amazing perk. Uh, these experiences combined with her astute artistic skills and ability to cultivate and energize her trainees makes Leslie a valuable industry resource for aesthetic medical practitioners worldwide. Welcome, Leslie. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. What an so honor. The, yeah, so the background was an article that I saw published in a journal, which I admit I do not subscribe to. It's the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology. And the reason I don't subscribe to it is because I'm a neurosurgeon by training. But there are so many medical legal components to this article, I was compelled to do a deeper dive and actually seek you out. And it was actually not that easy to, find, to, to get in touch with you because you are so busy. And I do appreciate <laughs> that I was able to, to track you down and you were kind enough to join us. But um, I cannot tell you the number of clients we work with in the aesthetic space who will call me during the week and say they have an unhappy patient. Mm -hmm. This unhappy patient um, had, according to the practitioner, be it an injector or a surgeon, they, they, they generally use these words, they had a perfect outcome. Mm -hmm. And that's perfect to them, That meaning that when they're looking at this objectively, if their peers looked at it, they can say, um, I did exactly what I was supposed to do and I am proud of my results, but for whatever reason, the patient does not see this and all sorts of mischief follows, namely um, verbal abuse to either the doctor, uh, the injector or the staff, email tirades back and forth, texting at all hours of the night and on weekends. And when I say text, we're talking about 10 pages of text mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. uh, threats to see a lawyer, um, nastiness online. I, I could go on, but this is very familiar territory for the space. And I think part of the problem is making a good diagnosis in the beginning, mm-hmm. making a good diagnosis in the beginning. So we go back to basics of what you know we're taught in in school, which is you treat after you've made a good diagnosis. And if somebody comes into the practice with a mental illness and body dysmorphic disorder, which we'll talk about is one of those components, um, performing aesthetic procedures for a mental illness is generally not gonna get you to the outcome everybody is looking for. So why don't we start by your background? How did you get into the aesthetic world broadly and then how did you take an interest in terms of identifying these challenging uh, patients oh gosh okay so well i i do have a bit of a design background and when i was in nursing school one of my colleagues actually was going to school for uh aesthetic nursing or at that time it was plastic surgery nursing and uh, she also had a, a bit of a design background. And when I realized that there was a, a medical uh, component to um, with the design as well, I was really interested in, in exploring the opportunities in this space. When I started 21 years ago, almost 22 now, um, there really wasn't there. There wasn't Botox. Botox was just kind of being um, approved and, and fillers were not really a thing. So it wasn't as artistic as I would have liked, but I kind of saw the trend of where it was going. And so I I stuck with it and certainly glad I did. It's an incredible field of medicine that a lot of people, um, you know, maybe don't see as complex as it actually is. And I think it takes a certain person to marry all the components that goes with it, the design, the psychology and uh, the medicine. And so, um, it's a, it's a tough field. It really is. I always, when people say, what do you do? I go, well, I make about 4,000 women happy. And, uh, that's, that's the, probably the most challenging job that anyone could do, <laughs> make them happy and make them feel beautiful on a budget. Uh, so it's a really complicated position. And, um, yeah, let me, let me just interject here. Mm-hmm. So I've heard this one statement. I don't know if it's accurate or not, but they said the cosmetic patient is unhappy until they're not. So maybe oh. <laughs> maybe that's a bit of hyperbole and overstatement, but I wanted to dovetail with your statement. You make 4,000 uh, women patients happy each each year, and that has got to be a challenge. I think yeah. just making 99% of people happy is almost a Herculean and impossible task, and it only takes one one person to uh, to get into 99% of your brain and become mm-hmm. a tenant. A tenant that overstays their welcome in your brain, then you forget about the other 99%. You only think about this one person who, for whatever reason, is unhappy, and it's unclear how to make that person better. Right. And I mean, that's the that's the problem is, you know, we shouldn't be focusing on that one person in our headspace. But if you're a good provider that cares about outcomes and cares about you know, meeting patient expectations, that one patient is just going to keep you up at night. And so right. my goal with uh, writing this article and, and subsequent courses that go along with it as far as patient expectations is to increase patient satisfaction. That's always my goal. And if we can increase the satisfaction by decreasing the number of patients who aren't going to be satisfied to begin with, our overall patient satisfaction is going to be higher. So that's why 
the screening and the discussion beforehand and all of those things that happen before because if you do it before you know it's informed and it's um mm -hmm. it, you're considering all things if you do it after you're it sounds like you're making an excuse so my goal is to get this done before yeah, I've often said that if you say something up front, it's an explanation. If you say mm -hmm. it after the fact, it's an excuse. Yeah. So what what is body dysmorphic disorder? How should people, I mean, many people listening to this will be aware of it and understand it, but many of our listeners are not primarily in the aesthetic space, um, mm -hmm. but they still will see patients who have issues related to um uh, to this disorder, and it is something that uh, psychiatrists and psychologists um, can and do see, but tell us about it. Help us understand what it is more formally. Well, I think the biggest misperception is that people assume it has to do with the body, hence the name. The name is actually, um, I think it's probably not the best name because people think immediately, you know, bulimia, anorexia, and mm -hmm. things to do with the body. And that's actually in a completely different category. It's a different class as far as the, the diagnosis goes. Um, this is specific to uh, the category of obsessive compulsive disorder. So in effect, um, these are patients that are very disturbed, very concerned with one or more parts of their body or face and they're obsessed by it so um, they can't think of anything else but that area of their face or body um, and so you know we have some epidemiology if you're interested in that it's it's generally about two percent in the in the general population um, most of the articles that i'm reading as far as cosmetic um, indicator mm -hmm. co cosmetic uh, areas of medicine we're, we're running about 12 to 15 percent so about 600 percent higher than the general population as far as what we're seeing um, wait wait and that, so, just, that just bears repeating please just repeat that statistic because i need to digest that one more time i mean the the prevalence in the population being two percent is already a big number people don't think well two percent is not a big number but uh, i can tell you that um if you think of the number of people with epilepsy in the population it's probably on the order of several million but still a low number but the the impact it has on the population is dramatic mm -hmm. and here you're saying two percent uh, of the population has body dysmorphic disorder but if you go into an aesthetic practice that number shoots up repeat that number again i just want to make sure everybody heard that well, anywhere, if you read articles, anywhere between 12 and 20%, so kind of an average at 15%, so 700, 6 to 700% higher than the general population, which is staggering. And But to take it even further, Dr. Segal, it's staggering that almost no one screens for this. And I know that sounds like a hyperbole, but I, as you read in my, in my bio, I'm, I'm boots on the ground. I am in a lot of practices and I have contact with a lot of people in this space. I do dinners with 50, 100, 200 people. And I always ask just by show of hands, how many of you are screening every time your new patients for psychological disorders, mainly body dysmorphic? And I, I haven't, I can't tell you a time where we've had one or more hands go up. It's, it's not happening. And we will link to that article in our show notes. Um, but I do, so I think one of the reasons um, practitioners are uncomfortable even talking about body dysmorphic disorders because they, even though they may understand it, even though they may have seen patients with it, and even though they may have 
questions they can ask. They don't want to offend a patient when they're coming in. That's the perception. The perception is that if I start asking questions about the three doctors I saw previously and the types of procedures, and I start linking this to a potential diagnosis of body dysmorphic disorder in this conversation, they may be wrong and they may turn the patient off. And this is a, a marketing game. It's a numbers game. And um, I, I think I think that's one of the challenges. But what I really loved about your article in the screening tool is that it's cryptic, meaning that it's kind of a broad-based uh, checklist up the front, which the patient uh, is filling out on their own. You're not There's nobody in the room having a chat. Mm-hmm. Some of the questions um, are the typical questions you would expect and just, just in terms of any aesthetic uh, patient coming in, but sprinkled in there are several leading questions that give you a heads up. And the mm-hmm. heads up is what alerts you. This And again, this is just a first pass. This, is, this doesn't basically say definitively you have that. It's just, hey, this is a red flag. We should at least pay some attention and probe. So talk a little bit about the types of questions that you ask in this checklist and the ones that are the cryptic. Now, I'm calling them cryptic. Now we're telling the whole world what they are, but by yeah. and large, this is for providers and should should help them. Well, and and honestly, patients kind of can see this too. Um, it's it is cryptic in the fact that we're not giving them a official screening. If they see that, then then it can kind of alert them and get them concerned and and maybe walk out. And and you might be weeding out people that are unnecessarily you know, to weed out. So I I loved the fact that this was somewhat cryptic because it still gives you opportunity to discuss why they checked that box. So mm-hmm. some of the non, um, so the healthy, I guess, motivators for, for cosmetic treatments, I want to look less saggy. I want to look more attractive. I want to look healthier. I want to look slimmer. Um, I want to, um, feel more feminine, look less tired. These are all normal, Mm -hmm. very, very healthy motivators. There's four in my list that um, are just sprinkled in. So there's no particular order. And if they check those, then we have another conversation. And those four sound like this. I want to look 20 again. And of course, that is applicable for people over, you know, 30 or 40, because it is reasonable if you're in your early 30s to go back to your 20s. But um, most of my patients are a bit older. So that one will fit the bill if they're in their 60s and they say they want to look 20 again. Um, that's that's a concern for me. And we will definitely have a conversation on that. Yeah, um, it's, it's the, definitely that's assuming your patient <laughs> isn't Benjamin Button. Yeah, <laughs> well, they all want to be. That's the thing. Exactly. Um, And then another one is I want to look perfectly symmetrical. So one of the markers for body dysmorphia is is symmetry. They're very uh, focused on symmetry. And if there's some asymmetry, it could be a huge trigger for them. So if this is something that they check the box, we have a conversation about that. Um, I want to uh, fix one particular flaw. So if there's one thing that they're focused on that they just can't see the forest through the trees because they're so focused on one particular line or scar or um, something of that nature. Um, That's going to be a conversation. And then the last one is that they want to look perfect. And I'll be honest, you think, oh, no one's going to check this box because they're going to know that I, Mm -hmm. I'm going to know there's a problem with this, but we get people that check this box. I mean, 
a, a lot, actually. Uh, I don't know about a lot, but enough to have it on there continually. And uh, so I have that conversation. And sometimes it looks like this. I'll say, you know, Sally, you, you checked here that you want to look perfect. What, what does that mean to you? And they'll just mm -hmm. say, well, of course I can't be perfect, but who doesn't want to? And then obviously that is a weeding out. I'm like, okay, she's fine. She understands that this was kind of, you know, tongue in cheek and she just checked it for that. But, but occasionally they'll say, well, yeah, I mean, I'm here for perfection. Otherwise, why would I spend this kind of money if I didn't end up looking perfect? And right then mm -hmm. and there, I don't even need to give them the official screening, but I could if I wanted to. Um, they're not going to be a good candidate for, for treatment. And, and whether they have body dysmorphia or not, if they have that type of response, they are um, uh, just a liability at this point and so then the conversation needs to go further we need to talk about you know taking that official screening and what our protocol is at the practice and i think that was one of the most fascinating things from the um study is that a hundred percent of providers that were in my study um and there were eight medical spas doing this um, pilot for me right. Uh, said they would continue using the screening tool. And the main reason was that they, they felt they had an out because that is the hardest conversation to have with someone is to say, I'm sorry, you know, I can't take you on as a patient. Um, but with this official kind of screening or cryptic screening, it gives them a, um, a rationale or a protocol to follow. So if you just have a, an RN that works for a big practice and she doesn't want to have this conversation, she can just kind of defer to her practices protocol. It's our practices protocol that if you, if you check this box that you want to look perfect and you, you know, are, are probably not the best candidate for us and we actually can't see you. It's part of our protocol and we have the, the right to refuse treatment here. And we just don't think that this is going to be a successful um, relationship. And so we would refer you to, you know, X, Y, and Z. And if they've taken the official screening and have failed it, then that's the time to refer to actually a colleague who specializes in this. And I, I do recommend having those names on hand. Um, so that it looks like you do this, you know, on a regular basis and this isn't kind of a one-off, um, that it's actually right then and there ready for them. What is, what type of practitioner or type of special specialist would have the skill set to pick up the baton? If you sent a referral, um, this may be somebody with body dysmorphic disorder. Can you, can you evaluate this individual on a deeper level? I'm, here's the name and I've asked them to make a phone call. Who has that? I mean, would it just be any psychiatrist, any psychologist, or is it somebody that has a unique interest in this field? I think it's the latter. I think that um, for me, I came across a good friend of mine, actually, who's um, who's a therapist who specializes in in women and and their types of disorders, sexual health and and abuse and all that. And but she also has a, a really great following for eating disorders and mm -hmm. um, and image disorders. And so uh, I had asked her if she'd be willing to see some of my patients. And of course, she was more than willing to do that. And so I keep her card ready. But I'm sure you know this as as a legal guy, you, you want to give more than one referral. So then I had to just sort of start calling around and asking, interviewing, you know, do you specialize in this? How do you feel about this? Um, type of uh, disorder and and can you know locally and can I refer patients to you so giving a couple of names I think is going to be your best bet and having them handy in a set of you know you even have a, a copy of all three of their cards that you hand out because it 
again, it normalizes it for the patient. It's not like, oh my gosh, this is the first time I've ever seen this. It's like, oh, here's a handout for you. I would like for you to reach out to one of these three providers just to talk about it, just to see if this is a good option for you. Because, and statistically, and I, I didn't get to this, but uh, it's about 98%, almost 99% dissatisfaction for true body dysmorphic patients if they try to get treatment. 98.5% of those patients are not happy with their treatment. So it's, so it's predictable it's, how it's, very it's, predictable. Almost, it's predictable they're going to have a bad outcome. Mm -hmm. And I have often asked providers, I said, if you had known that this individual would be that difficult in your practice, I asked two questions. One, would you have taken care of them? But that's the predictable answer. The answer mm -hmm. is no. I said, would you have paid this individual not to come to your practice? <laughs> 100% they say yes, I would have paid this individual to stay away, just like some farmers are paid not to grow crops in a particular area to keep the land fertile. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it creates such a headache, and I, I do agree with you that if you had an exit ramp, and mm -hmm. the exit ramp is twofold here, one is that per our protocol, you answered you know, yes to I want to look perfect, or I want to look mm -hmm. like I'm 20 years old when the patient is obviously 62 mm -hmm. years old. Um, that creates a nice exit ramp, as well as the option to send them to to an individual who can help them. And and we are we are used to referring patients mm -hmm. oh, to yeah. other providers for all sorts of things. So if a patient came in and and they gave you a history that was compatible with epil new onset of seizures, you would probably find a neurologist to send them to. If they said they're having chest pain, you'd probably send them to a cardiologist. I, I, it's not clear to me why there's a discomfort to sending a patient to someone in the mental health space, but that has been my experience in speaking with physicians. It's almost like this esoteric field that's out there that they know so little about that they haven't taken the time to identify talented professionals in that space. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's the thing with aesthetics medicine to begin with is there's so many uncharted waters that we haven't had to do yet or we haven't thought about doing. And so we're still at 20 years in of this non-surgical kind of space laying the ground rules for what is uh, should be typical protocol in a practice. And so what I like to do in my courses is is offer a really great terminology because people just don't know how to do it so um you know this isn't my area of expertise this is kind of beyond my scope of practice mm -hmm. i i have been tr you know told or trained that if this particular check mark is is given and this is something that is concerning to you that that i need to refer you to uh, someone who does specialize in this before we see you and so you can kind of leave the door open a little bit if you feel like it maybe is on the line of a potential case, but you're not sure. If you're 100% sure, I wouldn't even leave that door open. But but even just saying, you know, we need you to see this particular provider to see if you're in um, the right space to do this, because I want you to be happy too. And studies show that, that patients who struggle with this are, aren't happy with their treatment. So I don't want you to spend your money on something that you're not going to be happy with. It's not going to be good for you. It's not going to be good for me. And I just think it's best if you see a specialist in this area first. Um, and so giving them kind of that verbiage to, to uh, unleash them onto another provider without 
sounding like you're just closing that door 100%. But um, the other thing I love to provide uh, other providers is ways to incorporate this particular question into their typical H&P, because hopefully anyone in this medical field of aesthetics is doing a good health and and physical before we actually see them. And so, um, you know, they fill out the cryptic screening. We have that before we do our H&P. But some great opening lines for our providers is, are you under the current care of a psychiatrist or psychologist? And you wouldn't believe the numbers of people who are. I be, I'm going to look it up really quickly, but um, I I think it's, oh, it's 50% of, of uh, our patients, so cosmetic dermatology patients in a study, as opposed to medical dermatology, are uh, using some sort of psychotropic medication. So 50% of our patients are under the care or are getting some sort of psychotropic medication. And that um, could be from a family doctor, for example. It yeah. could be as simple as, hey, I'm just getting Prozac from my family doctor, but that's still, it still um, follows up it, on your point, which qualifies. is it's a psychotropic medication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so um, we also ask for medication. So if they're not under the care of a psychiatrist or psychologist, but they're on that, that mm-hmm. is also part of our intake form. Um, let's see, 19% of patients reported, cosmetic dermatology patients reported ongoing psychotherapy, um, and that's 4% in the general population. So we're looking at a huge uh, discrepancy there. And uh, 50% reported a history of mental health treatment. Um, so, so these are, this is a psychological uh, modality, honestly. It really is. People don't understand it. These, these procedures are not medically necessary, so therefore they fall within the psychological domain. So not screening and not asking about their psychological history is really missing a huge component. So I do like to give people um, ways to do that. Are you under the current care? And then the other thing that we screen for is needle phobias. How relevant is that? Like we, it's so important to what we do since everything that we do is pretty much involving a needle. So we talk about needle phobias and that's our entry into the psychological domain during our H&P. Do you have any needle phobias we need to be aware of? Yes or no. Um, do you have any other anxieties or major depressive disorders or bipolar disorder? Um, do you have any tendencies to pull out your hair or eyelashes to pick your skin? Um, or do you have any issues with body dysmorphic disorder? And so you kind of roll it into a, a myriad of other psychiatric ailments that would really are very relevant in our field and so it normalizes it that we we do this for everybody and we do do it for everybody Um, and so our our non-affected patients are very grateful that we're taking the time to screen for this so if nothing else our non-affected patients are like wow this place is ethical because they're screening for somebody who might you know want to get too much done and and that's going to tell me that they're ethical they're going to turn them away um, but for our affected patients, it really, it seems like a, a normal list when we kind of lay it out like that, starting with the needle phobias down to the major anxieties, maybe some claustrophobia, because there's some treatments we do that might include, you know, getting into a smaller space or putting goggles on or, you know, something like that. And so it, it really does, it does seem very typical, very normal, and it's not uncomfortable to ask when you put it in a list like that. Well, the more you do it, the easier it gets. I mean, you rolled 100%. that off uh, of your tongue so quickly. It just yeah. sounded like part of a natural and normal um, conversation as if you have a history of shortness of breath or blood mm-hmm. clots in the leg. 
uh, pulling out your eyelashes. It just seemed mm -hmm. like it came right out of the uh, the same sentence, if you will. Yep. yep. And that's what I tell pay I, providers that I'm training. You need to practice this. Just, and it needs to be for every patient. It's just part of your screening and you just say it like it, you say it 15 times a day. And if it means practicing in front of the mirror, then you do that because it can't look uncomfortable or it just starts this um, snowball effect of uncomfortableness. You just have to make it seem like this is something you do for everybody, that this is not specific to them because if they really are affected, they're already gonna be in a very uh, heightened state. So you just need to kind of Self-conscious mode. Mm -hmm. Um, you said that many, many, uh, people, um, are already seeing a psychologist or a psychiatrist, et cetera. Mm -hmm. The subtext is that it's unclear that their mental health professional, mm -hmm. the person that they're seeing would have already made a diagnosis of this. So the question mm -hmm. is in, in one sense, you're basically saying, I think you may have something. I see you're already seeing a mental health professional, but the subtext is, well, they obviously missed this. How do you bridge that gap? How do you get them back potentially to their mental health professional to see if they could potentially screen it? And it may be it's not their area of expertise, so it's no, it's no surprise. Well, it's it's also no surprise because the the questions probably aren't coming up for that. Like right. they might be going in for depression, um, but they're not seeing them at the point where they're looking in mirrors and flipping through, you know, thousands of photos of, of inspirational photos of what they want to look like, but they're being in for depression. Um, and so those questions aren't even correlated one, you know, at all. And so we do know this even just from research there, these patients aren't going to their psychiatrist, psychologist, even family practice doctor because of this disorder. They're coming to us because they don't realize they have the disorder and they think that we can help them with this um, with this issue or this this one flaw that they're obsessed with. So um, they might be, you know, maybe tuned into some OCD tendencies, their provider, but it's it's probably not gonna spiral down into body dysmorphic disorder unless it's a clear thing like an eating disorder, which is I already mentioned is a completely different category. But it's very, it seems very uh, unlikely that it would come up even when they're under the care of a psychiatrist or psychologist. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of Medical Justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. 
reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.